You're listening to Post Perspectives Meet the Artist podcast, sponsored by Puget Systems. Hi, I'm Randy Altman with Post Perspective, and welcome to the latest episode of our Meet the Artist podcast. For this edition, we spoke to Tanya Bracco, who is a co-executive producer on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Enjoy. Tanya, hi, welcome. Hi, Randy. How are you? I'm good. It seems like it's been years and then there was the pandemic in between and it just seems like it's been forever since we've we've caught up and chatted. How are you? Good. I know. What a time warp. <laughs> crazy, crazy year. So I'm hoping that back to at least a usual whatever year that means, whatever that means these days uh, in 2024. Yeah. Well, you guys, I mean, it's because the strike. So you guys were, were off for a bit and then you guys came back and then I know that, that Stephen got COVID, so you were off and then you were back and then Stephen needed emergency surgery. So yeah. <laughs> we've got to do a month of shows. Can we just do a month of shows? <laughs> so I just wanted to talk a little bit about how we first met, which was when you were back working on the Colbert Report. Um so you and I, I guess we, we interviewed some of your, your post folks on the show. Yeah. And then um and then you guys were getting ready to head off crazily to Iraq, which back then was sort of a war zone. Yeah, it was a war zone. Uh it was actually the peak of the war. Uh and I think it was a year or two after the height of it. I think the year after. So it was it was insane. And we went to the Alpha Palace. Uh, the headquarters of the war and Steve and uh, Saddam's uh, water palace, which is crazy. Well, I'll, I can give you a bit more about that, but I just want to say, I think, was that the year that we bumped into you at NAB and you were doing a broadcast from there or was it the, the following year when I think that was, <laughs> yes, I think that was the following year. Yes. The following year when, um, uh, yes, everybody was like, hey, is Stephen going to take Letterman's job? We're like, no. And then the following day, they announced it. <laughs> at, that NA, at the NAB the year before, um, we went and we went to an, you know, just to address post perspective here, uh, we went to an avid demo that they were having. And I was there with Jeremy, who's now at John Oliver. And uh, he was like, like paying attention to this presentation and all I kept doing was looking at these two laptops and I'm like, are those avids? Are those avids? And I'm like, I don't care about this presentation. If those are avids, we need those. And sure enough, um, we, we spoke to the technical folks and those were prototypes. And, uh, I said, well, can we get two of these we need at least two of them and they literally loaned us or got us somehow finagled two of those laptops and that was literally the control room that became uh, our little edit station in iraq because we had to literally take an entire control room so it was literally like a mixing board that i think they might use in high schools along with two avids with 50 cables coming out of them and that was the control room <laughs> And that was from literally NAB the day the the year before, and they weren't even there to promote or sell those. All I kept saying is, "We need those Avids. They're laptops." <laughs> now they probably have. Yeah. It's not a big deal to have Avid on a laptop, but 
but back then it was a big deal and it was sort of unproven. So you guys, I mean, you guys flew out there with these laptops and you were just like, let's hope nope. it works. <laughs> this is the only way it can work because we had to take everything with us. They had a limited cargo. So we were allowed certain cargo ahead of time, but it was tiny. And uh, so we had to take everything, but God forbid we forgot one cable. We might as well go to the moon because then it wouldn't work. So we literally assembled the control room, I think, in my office um, and connected everything and then make sure to label and package it to send it off. It was nuts. It is. But you guys, I mean, you guys, not only were you going into a war zone, but you were going into a war zone to put on a show that you weren't exactly sure if it was going to work out. And did, and did it work out with like out any hiccups? Were there any sort of like things that you needed no. to do there that there were a lot that we had to work out and thank God, you know, the military was so great and accommodating, but uh, one of the, the crazy things we had to deal with is the bandwidth, like getting a show out because we were, we were literally feeding the show and editing it and airing it that night. So, um the bandwidth and you know this is where i have some technical knowledge enough to get in trouble but not enough to get out of trouble but let's just say we needed you know one gig to get out they would have the equivalent of 50 meg so the quality that had to be fed was so downgraded from what we needed for broadcast so what would happen was we would uh, shoot the show, do the minor edits that we needed because most of the show is pretty uh, organic and, and true to what we tape other than some fixes or if we go over, we fix it to time. But then we would send it uh, off and we would email or upload the graphics and then it would be up-res and then the graphics would be reinserted because that's how low the bandwidth was. So that was one of the biggest technical challenges we had. But thank goodness for them. They had this little satellite dish and this little tiny uh, TV station that they used for many of their journalists that was, if I recall correctly, inside one of these metal like uh, um, containers. <laughs> like it was a tiny little uh, studio, like makeshift trailer, uh, that they created this little, little station from. And so after we would shoot the show, we would head over there to, to feed it. <laughs> it's crazy, but it's crazy. It's crazy. And how long after you got back, did the transition to, to CBS happen? Okay. So Iraq was 08, I believe the sub 09 summer of I want to say it was 08 and yeah. And, uh, it was 2014 that this show ended and 20, the report ended. And then 2015 September, when we launched the late show with Colbert. So it was a few years later, but what was crazy is, uh, we got back and, um, and that year we were doing a high def upgrade because when we first started the show, they were still analog and we went to digital the year we got to the studio because we took over this tiny little studio, this great, fabulous brownstone that had a TV studio attached to it. And that was our, our show. So the Daily Show had moved to a bigger facility and we took over their, their original 
facility. And so we upgraded to digital when we started. And a few years later, so we come back from Iraq and we have this big HD upgrade that had to take place while we were taping shows. And in between, you know, every few weeks, every at the time, seven to eight weeks, we would have one week off. So every big chunk had to be done in these weeks while, so there was a lot of coordination um, to be done. And then while we're in the middle of it, uh, they're like, hey, you think we can go to Vancouver? And we're like, Vancouver is in January. <laughs> like what? And so within a month, we planned Vancouver and it ended up being a really great uh, week of shows. But we threw that together while we were doing the HE upgrade. So at the end of that year, I was like, holy moly, what else can we get done? <laughs> and Vancouver was for the Olympics? That was the Olympics? Olympics for the Winter Olympics. But so that was a, a that was, let's just say, um, challenging. And uh, I look back and a lot of growth <laughs> happened that year. Um, but the Alpha Palace for, for, you know, I didn't know much about the details in Iraq. I think a lot of the soldiers there knew a lot more or people who had been stationed or, or gone there, reporters and such. But it's basically the water palace and Saddam had built it. Um, it, it was one of his later palaces and he has a bunch of them all over Iraq. And what was crazy is every night dinner had to be ready because you never knew which uh palace he would show up in and he was so paranoid that he was going to be assassinated that he would have doppelgangers <laughs> like at different ones which is nuts but the but the alpha palace was built and um in order to get have a lake in baghdad saddam had to divert um uh, water from, I guess, a Tigris, Tigris and Euphrates rivers, basically where heaven, like in the Bible, the birth of civilization meets there. Moses was in these um, uh, marshes, water marshes. Uh, when you read like the basket and all, you know, like I'm hiding Moses in the basket and all of that, that's the location of where this took place. He had to divert water from that region to get it into Baghdad. Well, first of all, you're you're messing up and disrupting civilization that has been there for thousands of years. But then the water created this lake and a place that doesn't have a lake. So it brought on all these mosquitoes. Well, they didn't know what to do with the mosquitoes. So he's like, well, we have to get rid of the mosquitoes. So he actually brought in bats from Transylvania to eat the mosquitoes and had a, a fish, uh, basically the closest thing to a piranha that I've, I can imagine. It's a carp that would, that basically eats anything. And they would eat all the larvae and the mosquitoes and such. And I remember when we went to scout, the the cooks were like hey you want to see something cool and we walked out and they would literally throw in buckets of like the breakfast scrap food 
and you saw a fish going like, and you'd be like, oh my God, like the last thing you want to do is slip and fall in that water. They're like, oh yeah, God knows how many bodies are down there. You hear these stories about like evil villains and things, but we were literally in a place that you might as well had a moat because it's like not an alligator, but you had like carp that was, that was eating human flesh, like meat and bacon and like things no fish should ever eat and bats flying around at night. And so you're like, you make this up. And then to boot, when we landed, we were going to, we literally made it there before a desert storm. And I knew that the whole operation was called Desert Storm, but I never quite realized why uh, or, you know, until we got there. And then this, we landed, thank goodness, because we were the, we had two flights in and uh, I was with the second team, you know, along with Steven and our, our creative folks. And we landed and that night and the next day, a desert storm came in and all you could see is like the shadow of the sun. And you might as well have been four or five, like if you were like more than five feet away from me, I could not tell who you were. You could only see a silhouette at best. So you go, oh, now I know why they call this the Operation Desert Storm. So it, so you, like you think of these things like villains and like crazy stories of like, uh, you know, that you read of, uh, and all of a sudden you're there and you go, Oh, and then to add to that, and then we'll move on to a more, more technical <laughs> conversation. Um, that palace was used a lot by Uday and Kusei, Saddam's sons. And there are of course, all these myths that go around and Uday, I think was the older brother and he was apparently the, the more evil one and uh, the younger one, like just, you know, went along and partied and such, but they, they, they loved gold and they had gold plated elevators and the toilets were like ornated with, with gold and a lot of brocade, but they called it like the, the bloody elevators. I forgot the name of that they call them because they would go and interrogate people in the basement. So if you were invited to the palace, that's great. But if you went into that elevator and it was going down instead of up, you knew that was not a good sign. So like, here we are in this palace with these bloody elevators and carps that eat human flesh and bats flying around at night. And you're like, you can't make this up. Our designer, Jim Fennehigan, who was great, basically uh, sent, we, we built, I think our desk with sandbags, but we were not allowed to bring sand into the palace because it's like impossible to get out when you when you get sand anywhere right so we, we were sitting there stuffing that with instead of what we thought were going to be sandbags with paper and stuffing and stuff and it ended up looking great and uh shopped for local rugs in baghdad which that was a fun experience so that we would have like a proper set uh when we got there but we got there we did we we did a four weeks uh four weeks four amazing shows from there, like a week of shows. And, you know, um, it was incredible. And we were able to work with the USO, which was such an honor and um, work with a local Indian crew. And so we were able to work with a local crew who then was able to help 
um, transport some things at a lot shorter distance than what we could have brought overseas, uh, but basically to set up. But it was our camera guys, our director, our New York uh, skeleton crew to head over there to to try and pull this off. So it was, uh, it was quite a feat and quite a great collaboration with the military, with the USO, with the local Indian group, uh, crew, and with you know uh, our team back home because people had to stay back to catch the footage to then make it to air that night, so. You're listening to Post Perspectives Meet the Artist podcast, sponsored by Puget Systems. So let's talk about the transition over to CBS from Comedy Central. Which you- and that's what I was thinking at. You would think, but the transition was, was I think Iraq might have prepared us for the transition because we were going from four half-hour shows a week to five one-hour shows a week. And the what it takes to put five one-hour shows is is quite incredible. We uh, pretty much doubled the size of our staff and uh, because you're producing more than double the hours a week. You went from two hours a week to five hours a week. And now, thankfully, after years, we're down to four hours a week. <laughs> Um, because we negotiated over time less and less Fridays because the, the it's just so much to produce, especially the way, you know, we like to do it. And Stephen and Tom and our writers um, needed to be more topical. And Stephen himself is also a writer. So it's it's not like just putting a host in front of a camera reading from a prompter. Um, and even if you are a little bit involved, not to that level. So it was just too much. So anyway, so we're here, we're doing, we're now doing four shows a week, but that transition was, uh, was crazy. And, um, you know, and we went from a small cable show, um, where we could get away with a lot (laughs) to a network show where all eyes are on you before we could probably get away with so much that we could never on network TV because you have a much broader appeal. You have to, you have to cater yeah. to the country and not just your niche comedy central uh, folks. But also I imagine that the budgets were, were bigger too. So how did that affect the way that you guys shot the show, posted the show, all of that? Right. Well, um, Timeline, it was not a crazy difference in the timeline in that we taped late in the afternoon or early evening and had a short edit turnaround to basically clean up the show and then you feed it. So that part is fine, but we now had at the time seven acts. Um, uh, We've gone down to six fairly recently, but um, we went from a half hour four-act show um, to a one-hour, you know, seven-act show. So the the amount of material each night was so much more than go through to edit and to, and to post and post in a timely manner. I do, if I recall, we would feed linearly on the last show. So we would edit and then we would quality control it, QC it, as it was being fed sometimes. Of course, we did it while we were editing, but um, 
now we have to do that ahead of time because uh, we feed it, we push to the network. Uh, so we're pushing files as opposed to linear feed. And ironically, I remember we used to close caption when we were feeding and uh, now it's, it's closed captioned, uh, I believe when it goes live to air. So it's a very different uh, uh, post flow. And they, uh, I guess the Vantage system, which I didn't know much about until this show, uh, now feeds it to multiple places. So we feed it to the network and then international and um, and such. So it has a lot more capability. The push capability is a lot more, I guess, sophisticated than your your good old fashioned feed. Um, yeah. So when you were on the Colbert Report, you you were involved with a lot of different things. You had your hands in a lot of different stuff. But now with this new show, well, not new anymore, but um, with the CBS show, how has your role changed? Um, well, uh, luckily, I, I mean, I still get, I'm still involved with a lot of the physical production and I get to um, liaise and uh, collaborate and coordinate more with the creative as to then, uh, as to executing um, the show. But I'm still, you know, I still oversee the physical production, but because it's such a behemoth of a show, um, we have a lot more uh, folks and an entire technical team and CBS has an entire um, engineering and operations division. Um, so what we basically, we basically had a little mom and pop shop where, yeah. it, you know, we had, I was much more involved with the technical and definitely at my comfort level, <laughs> when we moved here, I'm like, huh, what? Whoa, this is a, this is so not like what we used to do. And so, but luckily it comes with more people, more engineer, uh, engineering support, um, definitely more editors. We have six because we have four show editors to prep all the roll-in pieces and then uh, edit the show. And uh, we have an assistant editor uh, who does a lot of the music and a lot of the digital stuff. And we have a footage uh, editor who preps all the news clips that go down to the EVS to roll in because we have so many in our mono that we need a dedicated person for that. So that's why I didn't want to forget anyone. Um, but we went from three to six, which, you know, we're doubling the size of the content and, or the, um, the, the time. And I guess it makes sense that we would double the editors, um, yeah. for the content. Well, during the show, sometimes Steven will be like, you know, I can't remember the name, but so-and-so roll that tape. Like, is that a real Jimmy, person or Jimmy is our director and <laughs> Jim Hoskins, <laughs> Jimmy roll that tape. So yeah, yeah. He's our director and he was on our, our director on the last show as well. So. Oh, funny. So before you came to the Colbert Report, where were you? How did you find your way to the industry? This is so funny. Um, so I started, uh, and I had just, I moved from, I was raised in Brazil and I moved to LA. So I had heard about the high school for the arts and I'm like, what? Like fame? 
that exists. Of course I want to go there. So I, I discovered it that, that summer and I, they had one audition group left. So of course I, I rushed to get in and, um, I was part of a group, the, about five of us who were more interested in the technical than the performance. So, um, it was like the fifth year of the school. Uh, so I think they, um, so they basically started to form the technical department and allowed us to be more involved on the technical side, which was fantastic. And that's how I got my first taste of production. So I was applying to colleges and my, the director of the program, who was my mentor, and I was her like assistant, uh, assistant director, you know, during plays, because that's what I was more interested in. And doing, she was like, well, listen, why don't you check out my alma mater, Cal State Fullerton? I'm like, what? Where is that school? What? And she's like, well, it has a big department. You may like it. So I'm like, okay, I'll check it out. I was thinking UCLA, NYU, like, let's, you know. And so I went and I met with this wonderful uh, teacher and I spoke to a couple of different, um, the counselor and such. And they said, well, here's our program. And under the theater department, there was TV production and design and directing, acting, musical theater, writing, you know, they, and I'm like, wait a second, TV production is a major. And they're like, yeah, you can take that. I'm like, TV production is a major. I'm like, oh my God, that's totally what I want to do for a living and design because I loved design. So I was a theater major with a TV production and design emphasis. And cut two, <laughs> I'm working in a Broadway theater on a TV show. And yeah. I helped with the, with the design, because when we came into this theater, we basically redesigned the, the theater and you know implemented our set and lights and uh, audio was a whole conversation on the show. Like that's, that should be an article for post, but because try to do a TV show in a giant theater, you know? Um, but, um, so I'm like, this is insane. And that's how I kind of fell into what I do. I had interviewed at Paramount, um, and it turned out that it was for the publicity department and I am not a publicist. I admire that skill set. It's just not mine. And the lady's like, listen, uh, Kristen Morgan is her name. I'll never forget her because she changed my life. Uh, she said, listen, I'll hold on to your resume. This is not for you. And, uh, but I'll keep it in, keep you in mind in case anything, uh, opens up. You remind me a lot of me. And I'm like, Oh, so nice of you to turn me down so sweetly. Well, Three months, uh, like months later, I get a call and they're like, hey, would you be interested in being the intern to the president of network television? I'm like, come again? Yeah, of course. And um, ironically, I had been offered a research job at the documentary I was working on, which I loved and I thought it was great, but this was so great. And I, I tell this story because I always tell our interns, like, as long as you can pay your bills, go for the job that you think will lead to, to, you know, a better opportunity for you. And those two years, I, be, I became the second assistant after my internship ended and they were my grad school. I got to see how a network and a studio is put together from development to production, to post, 
to getting pilots, you know, back to develop pilots made, pitching them to the right networks, um, then, you know, marketing, getting the show picked up again, and doing that for a whole slew of, of shows from sitcoms to dramas to movies of the week to specials. So it was like, amazing but i realized that i wanted i that i loved working in production but i loved also liaising with the network and such and so that i'm like well i think being a line producer upm would be like a dream i was freelancing production managing a bunch of shows for a year and i did this show for um a spinoff of uh, tough crowd with colin quinn uh, at the time with Greg Giraldo, and that got me into the Comedy Central crowd. And that's where I heard about this pilot uh, for Stephen Colbert. And I'm like, what? That's the show I want to, I want to, I want to jump onto. And um, they postponed it a couple of times. And the producer who I worked with, I was like, I can't wait for this. I have to get a real job. I've just been doing pilot after pilot. And so she took Sesame Street. I'm like, Oh, well, Sesame Street is lovely. My husband had worked on it. So I was like, it'd be fun. It'd be great to work on Sesame. But I really want to do Colbert because the two shows that I went to, and I went to as many TV shows as I could when I had the time, because I always loved to learn and see how all the different shows were done. Um, and I enjoyed the, the process. But the two shows that I wanted to go to because I loved the shows were Saturday Night Live and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. So when I heard about this spinoff, I'm like, oh my God, I loved working at Comedy Central and I love The Daily Show. So um, the I, I called the production company uh, who basically had told me uh, who was hired as the producer. And I called the producer who I ironically had worked with on uh, at Rosie and I said, um, listen, if, if I have a chance to be hired, please tell me now, because this, I've been waiting for this show. I've I, like, I've been on hold for this show, uh, two producers ago, cause I kept interviewing producers who I happen to know. And, um, I said, because if you can't, I, I can't turn down Sesame street. So she calls me back and is like, listen, I just got the okay to hire you. So for one weekend, I think I had this ulcer because I'm like, oh my God, which do I pick? And I picked the Colbert Report and that was in 05. That was in July of 05. I started August 1 of 05 and 18 years later. <laughs> Tanya, thank you so much for, for joining us and for sharing all that. Thank you for listening to Post Perspectives Meet the Artist podcast sponsored by Puget Systems. For more information, please visit pugetsystems.com.